So um, you've all just witnessed a UCL tradition, which is trouble with PowerPoint in an inaugural lecture. I think it's, it's the fourth inaugural lecture I've been to so far this term. I think for three, we've had three different, quite distinct problems with PowerPoint. Anyway, it appears that we're in business again. Um, I'm Joe Wolfe. I'm the Dean of Arts and Humanities. And uh, I'm here really just to welcome you today. Uh, this inaugural lecture is one of a series that we have in Arts and Humanities and our sister faculty, uh, Social and Historical Studies, or Sciences, I should say. Um, and uh, we're delighted to have today's topic, Madness and Method in the Organization of Knowledge, which really could be about, be about the university as a whole, I think, rather, rather than just this particular topic. Uh, but but I, I'm just here to welcome you and to give you an invitation to the reception that will happen after this in the garden room, which is about three floors below, and we'll go in a convoy, uh, so no one need get lost. And I'll hand over now to Rob, who is going to be uh, going to introduce Founder. Well, so uh, this is a very great pleasure to be able to introduce Founder Broughton. I, I was trying to work out with um, Kirsten, our department administrator, who knows everything. Um, when I, you know, when you first arrived and when I first met you, and we think it was uh, 1997 that you arrived. Yes. And I, yes, you see, she gets everything right. Uh, I arrived in 1998, and I think that's when I first met you. And I think at the time you were a, a research assistant for Ian McElwain, sitting sitting there. Um, and I was a, I was a kind of a newbie um, computer scientist lecturer, and I remember Aya got us to um, have these research meetings together. And um, that's, where, that's how I first know you, from these slightly embarrassing to me, I have to say, I'll admit that now, uh, research meetings where the two of you sat and talked about uh, faceted something or other, and I sat there trying to kind of look as though I knew what you were talking about, which I didn't at all. But over the years, I've come to, um, come to appreciate what you do and how very interesting your subject is. And... Uh, what an interesting person you are to have around in the department. So uh, it's a great pleasure to introduce you. I'm really looking forward to this talk today. Um, quite confident that you'll give an interesting talk. I'm so confident that you'll give an interesting talk that I brought my 11-year-old uh, daughter along <laughs> to listen to this as well as me. And I believe you've brought your daughter along as well. So there we go. That's the next so uh, without further ado, Van de Professor Van der Broek. Uh, thank you, everybody. I should say before we start that this is not going to be a daughter-oriented talk, uh, nor necessarily suitable for anybody of 11 years old, although I think she has a brain of gigantic uh, proportions that's probably more aimed at somebody of about six years old. Um, knowledge organisation. Knowledge organisation is uh, what I do professionally. Uh, this might come up with a num number of other different names, uh, classification, indexing, information retrieval, discovery, or whatever. But it's out about the business of how you organize stuff with a view to finding it again. So we're going to have a gentle canter around the highways and byways of knowledge organization, looking uh, perhaps not very deeply 
at some of the problems, at some of the historical solutions, and to answer the question of whether really there is any point in us doing all of this um, and whether it makes any difference at all. I think it does. Uh, you may decide at the end that it doesn't. Um, a technical thing that we don't seem to have solved here is that the, um, the technology has spread my wide screen rather widely. So it is a wide view, it's a panoramic view of, uh, of knowledge organisation. Uh, now, part of this is sparked by the idea that uh, somehow nowadays computers will do all the work for us, that there's no uh, method in anything, everything is chaos. And there's this rather interesting book published in 2007 by somebody who's uh, really largely in the business world, uh, not a list, not an information scientist, but his thesis and the title of the book is that everything is miscellaneous. There is no order and there's no point in organising anything at all. Um, backed up by other web commentators like Clay Shirky, who's very well known, who says that ontology is overrated. Uh, there are no hierarchies, only links. Well, um, we may or may not agree with that, but in the year after the publication of this Everything is Miscellaneous, which I must say is the most annoying book that I've ever read, and I didn't get very far with it, um, I went to the International Conference of the International Society for Knowledge Organisation, because people do this on a global basis, it's not just me and some strange friends in the department who do it. Um, so, and they have a, a biennial international conference. Uh, this year it was in uh, Montreal and there was a pre-conference organised by the Online Computer Library Centre, a not-for-profit, very large organization that runs Dewey, um, uh, WorldCat, an uh, enormous multi-million item uh, catalog, online catalog and various other bibliographic and library enterprises and the title of their pre-conference was everything is not necessarily miscellaneous and what we may find at the end of this is that there are uh, elements of randomness in the world, but there are also elements of order, and in fact, for our own sanity, and in order to find things, we perhaps need to impose order where order is not natural. Um, now, you may think that's a rather Stalinist view, and somebody in the blog recently has accused me of being Stalinist, although I think perhaps we needn't go into that, but if you Google me, you will find it. There's an activity uh, for after the lecture, um, but I think what we see here is a spectrum of order, disorder, and managed information order. So um, is this not inherent? Systems of classification of knowledge organization are really important for efficient uh, organization and retrieval of information. And classifications per se, not necessarily in the library science sense, do help us to understand the world around us. Uh, there are many classifications that are scientific models. 
uh, built by people who are trying to understand whether there are general principles involved, whether there is in fact any natural order. Some of these can be very uh, difficult to understand from a cultural perspective. We can see uh, very differing views of the world. But nevertheless, it does seem very natural for human beings to think in this way uh, and to make classifications. And if we start looking for classifications, if we Google, you know, I have a proper academic method here, um, if we Google classification of, we'll find all sorts of uh, classifications uh, available to us. So here are some examples. I've got lots of slides, but mainly we'll be going through them fairly quickly. So here's a very obvious example of things that we would expect to classify. Here are uh, some blood groups, and most people will be familiar with this classification of, of blood groups. Uh, we've got <coughs> classifications of clouds here. Again, really important. I'm sorry, I'm going to need a drink now after the excitement of the technical problems. Here's a classification of knitting needles. <coughs> this is interesting. It's a classification by a certain attribute that we will find is also applied to books under some conditions. That's size. <coughs> Here's a classification of games. Games are very interesting both to categorise and to classify, and there are all sorts of criteria that you can apply in organising them. Wittgenstein, we'll just be deep for a moment, found that it was very difficult to create a category of games um, because there seemed to be no single attribute that characterised all games. There's another task um, for this evening. Um, uh, classification here of motorbikes quite nice. This is something to do uh, with what you're allowed to uh, ride when. This seems to be called a noped, I've just noticed. I think, well, maybe not. There's a moped there, so maybe that's something else. Um, a classification uh, that will allow you to understand various kinds of bread, um, again, with a number of different um, attributes there, um, the state of hydration of the dough, the fat content, uh, things that are yeasted or unyeasted, and so on. And of course, to go with the uh, bread, we would need some cheese. So here are some alternative classifications of cheese. Rather nice. This is um, arranged by the strength of the cheese. Up in this quadrant here are stinky cheeses. And after stinky cheeses come cheeses that are more assertive. And I don't know what this means in terms of cheeses, but there we are. Uh, these are cheeses by origin. There's cow, goat, sheep, and I'm actually not terribly sure where this other sort of cheese might come from. Might be um, camelids or llamas or, or some thing there. Uh, rather interestingly, like many of these collections of non-documentary objects, this is referred to as a library. Uh, and it's very common to see uh, collections of stuff, of objects of all kind, referred to as a library. Now this starts to get a bit heavy, and you think, do I need to be thinking more deeply about the nature of cheese and how to organise it? Um, 
And do I need to need, lose sleep over this? Well, don't fear, um, because you can refer to cheese problem solved. And I have to thank my colleague here, Professor Stevenson, who tracked down this particular item, uh, acquired it from the publisher and presented it to me because he thought I would appreciate it, as indeed I did. Um, here's a, a rather nice example. This is the Institute of Making that I look across the drive to here at UCL, and they have a materials library, uh, very interesting, also a library, um, but there's no indication of how it might be organised, so it's full of materials, but we're not sure um, how they manage it. Um, many of these uh, classifications are to do with understanding the world, um, and if we go back in history, uh, we can look at some historic types of uh, what I might call a scientific classification that's created as a kind of scientific model. So it takes, as all scientific enterprises do, the information that we do have and try to put that together in a kind of structure that then allows us to extrapolate and to find out information that we don't have. So that's a really important function of a classification, is to fill in the gaps. Um, this uh, thing on the right there is a classification of uh, Raymond Lull, uh, looking at the nature of the world. Um, and I've rather a feeling this was a series of concentric wheels that you could then turn and line things up. Um, and it's to do with what was most important for the medieval world, determining the nature and temperament of God. Um, so you can line up various attributes of God and then consulting your wheel, work out <coughs> the things that you don't know about him, which is probably due to the ineffability of God probably quite a lot. Um, here's a similar sort of uh, uh, medieval thing looking at the planets and how the planets influence the world. Now we say, well, that, isn't that just horoscopes? But at the time, the planets would be seen to have an effect on things like plants and diseases. And if you had a disease, it would be necessary to choose the right plant and to have it sown at the right time under the right planetary influences, and it would cure you. So these are rather imperfect and impartial models of the world. But the object is to try and achieve understanding, assuming that there's a divine purpose there. Um, this, of course, is the perfect classification, um, built uh, originally in the 19th century, but then further developed the classification of the elements in the periodic table. And this has exactly the same purpose as the medieval classification, because it takes what we know about the world of chemical elements, and it allows us to... Uh, infer what we don't know. So at the time that Mendeleev built this, um, most of the um, elements heavier than uranium would not have been discovered, but on the basis of the patterns and associations uh, displayed here, he could tell you <coughs> quite a lot about the elements that hadn't at that time um, 
well, discovered is probably the wrong word because some of them don't exist in nature, but he was able to attribute properties to them just as the medieval monastics uh, um, were able to attribute certain properties to God. Uh, but you can say the periodic table was in some sense more right than the medieval classification. But they have the same purpose. They're trying to make a model of the world um, and uh, allow us to say something about it. When we look at classifications developed in other cultures and in other societies, we may find worldviews that seem really quite surprising <coughs> to us. Um, many uh, language-based or cultural classifications have a surprising associations. This is an example. This is taken from the literature um, on cognitive anthropology, which is looking at mental uh, maps and thinking uh, in uh, often non-literate societies, in this case a very literate society, but a category of nouns in Japanese uh, brings together all things that are long and thin. And some of the associations of things that are long and thin um, don't always make sense to us. Um, it includes not just things that are long and thin, like knitting needles or telegraph poles, um, but things like martial arts that use sticks, um, hitting a ball so that it flies away somewhere, rolls of tape that you might think are not long and thin, but of course if you unroll them they are, um, and things like telephone calls because they make use of wire. So uh, the association of ideas here is... Uh, quite interesting and often a little bit odd to the Western mind. Here, this is my favourite one, and anybody who I've taught will be familiar with this. This is an Australian um, tribal classification of objects uh, that puts things in four categories. The first are men, kangaroos, possums, bats. This is all Saturday afternoon fun stuff. My son-in-law will like things like this. Um, birds and going out and having good time, boomerangs and so on. The second category, um, well, you make what you can of this. Women, um, bandicoots, the platypus, scorpions, crickets, the hairy mary grub. Um, um, uh, the third group has all sorts of edible fruit, um, nice things. They are, you see, I've looked at this so often, I can see the thinking behind this. And then uh, the fourth group is what we often have in classification schemes, miscellaneous, things other, things that we don't know what to do with. I'm sorry, um, uh, Weinberger may be right in this respect. Parts of the body, meat, bees, wind, yam sticks, some spears, noise, language, all those ineffable, inscrutable things. Um, but this is not how a Western mind would think about the world. So that tells us something. This is an interesting take on the blood groups. This I came across. Um, in Eastern Asia, it may be the same. This is a rather Greek thought, so I don't know why it seems odd to me, uh, that there may be association between blood groups and personality types. It seems odd to us, but the Greeks did think about um, body fluids and personality type. Um, and in some places, you can buy 
uh, special bath salts and then a special towel too that fits in with your blood group and is going to make you feel a lot better when you've used them. So that is slightly odd. Um, this again may be familiar. This is um, Borges. If anybody knows Jorge Luis Borges, uh, a famous librarian. Um, a national librarian in his home country of Argentina who had actually worked. He'd been a library worker in his youth, so he knew something about libraries, and a lot of his writings uh, are to do with the library as a model of the universe and following through these sorts of ideas about organisation um, and absurdity. And he refers to this Chinese encyclopedia that has this classification of animals. Well, you can probably read it for yourself, um, so there's no need for me to go through it. But again, the association of ideas, we go, this doesn't fit with Linnaeus, does it? Doesn't even fit with Aristotle. Um, how about things with legs, things with wings? No, uh, we've got things like uh, suckling pigs and mermaids and animals that have just broken a flower vase. And so, very, very odd thing. Foucault liked this. And if Foucault's impressed, who are we to disagree? He says, um, uh, he laughed, he rolled about on the floor laughing when he read this, because essentially, um, the, uh, the quantum leap, the shift uh, from Western thinking to this sort of thinking just... Uh, is so far apart, um, and as he says, it, uh, it uh, demolished all of his thinking about lists and ordering, so it's very delightful. As he says, it demonstrates not only the exotic charm of another system, but also the limitation of our own, and the fact that we couldn't think in this very different way. So Borges has something to say about this, these classifications of the world. He says it's clear that there is no classification of the universe that's not arbitrary and full of conjectures. Uh, the reason for this is very simple. We don't know what kind of thing the universe is. So all of our feeble attempts uh, to model the universe may come to naught, or they may be useful to us, but they look very different from different perspectives. Um, you may be relieved to know that I'm not going to speak about the analytical language of John Wilkins, which is another hobby horse of mine. So features of these classifications, they're all essentially their scientific classifications, although some of them don't look all that scientific. They're object classifications, they demonstrate structure, they show order, they show relationships, but they assume a single place for items. What they may do that's very distinctive is to make use of a lot of different attributes of the things that they classify. Now, when we come to organising information, that's, it's a very different thing. Organising subjects, organising information, organising documents, organising books um, is on a different plane to the organisation of objects because they are essentially very much more complex. And this begins to be a problem really from the early modern period. So here is a library from the early modern period. 
um, with people busying themselves and some attempt here, uh, classification by subject, which clearly has not been an issue if you're organising material. Um, and there is a very lovely book by Anne Blair, uh, his social historian, called Too Much to Know. And in the early modern period, people were panicking about the problems of too much to know and managing their stuff and thinking about how you could store your knowledge and find it again, which is the main purpose of the exercise. And you can see those big shifts in technology from the invention of writing. Now, at this point, we've got the invention of printing, and there's a big proliferation of information. And nowadays, we have the invention of the web. And again, there's a further rise in the level of panic about how we manage all this stuff and whether we should. Um, so from a library perspective, from a collection perspective, um, we're dealing with something that can be rather more difficult. Um, people have essayed various approaches to this. Um, this is Perek's list of principles. He's a, he's a modern writer. Principles for arranging a library. Um, and he suggests that there are all these uh, ways of going about it alphabetically by continent. Um, I assume that's the origin uh, rather than the subject. By colour. Colour is very common. Um, by date of purchase, by date of publication, and so on. All of these fairly external attributes of the documents, according to our reading priorities, which seems to me a very nice echo of social um, classification of tagging. Oh, read now, read later, put it on the shelf and forget about it, sort of tags that come up. But he says none of these are satisfactory, none of these is satisfactory in itself. Because you will have a nicely organised library, but it doesn't necessarily bring things together in the way that you want to. There's colour. How useful it is. I'm uh, com convinced that this has probably been photoshopped. This. Otherwise, this person has had a, an acquisition policy of choosing relatively equal numbers of books in each colour category. Also, I don't think there are that number of pink books. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I look in the wrong places. So colours very often suggested as a good way to organise a library. But other people have suggested things. Weight might be an issue in certain circumstances. This chap, Dix, he was an academic librarian. He proposed some of these things, but he said, wait. In his library, they had several tons of um, plaster and other casts of epigraphic inscriptions. Uh, that they needed to manage. This gave them a considerable shelving problem. I bet it did. Height might be another consideration for the organisation of books. Pepys was very precious about his books. Um, he gave a collection of 3,000, exactly 3,000 books to his old college, Magdalen. Cambridge, where it is to this to 290 years later, it's still there, in the original bookcases, arranged one to 3,000 in order of the height. In his own library, he's, it clearly offended him. It was a sort of Hercule Poirot of the 17th century. If the books were not all at the same level on the shelf, he had little heels made for them to lift them up. Um, so that's, that's important. Other principles um, 
we're back to the Chinese encyclopedias and catalogues again, rhyming last words of the title. Uh, the last syllable of the title or the subject should be the principle by which you organise things. So I can't do this in Chinese, and you're probably relieved about that. Um, but presumably translating it into English, this is the sort of association of ideas that you would then get. Uh, baboons, macaroons, French can. Cameroons, honeymoons, spittoons, another one for Ian, the Bruins, who I remembered, uh, the goons, teaspoons, cartoons, and so on. And you, and you feel intellectually superior to that. Uh, but in fact, if we look at this list, which is arranged uh, by the inverse, so it's alphabetical order, we get uh, similar um, odd associations of things, landscape, law and lawyers, London, lullabies, uh, medicine, mice, monsters and mothers. Um, I just uh, saved referring to the lawyer down here because otherwise monsters and mothers might have come together there and you think, well, this is crackers, isn't it? Why would anybody do this? It's the Library of Congress classification. <laughs> and I was hard pushed to decide whether to choose this list of topics in poetry or things on postage stamps, which are equally mad. And there was a nice association of Lenin, uh, lesbians, librarians, Luther, um, Mary, Blessed Virgin, Saint, uh, Methodists, and so on. So uh, the Library of Congress is full of these lunatic associations of ideas. Let's just go back to the list here. Cosmic order can be another. Uh, principle, nearly all early schemes start with God, and that's a requirement. Um, and in fact, when D'Alembert and Diderot uh, devised the uh, French Encyclopedia, they were uh, imprisoned for not starting with God, um, because that was seen to be wrong. Um, administrative order, then, is an alternative uh, to starting with God. You can just start with the most important people in the land and then work down to the, oh, so I was going to say plebs there, but I might be in trouble. Um, uh, so the archives of the divinatory tortoise, which I've not looked at myself, but uh, I'm sure uh, it exists or existed, did exactly that. And it started with the, the nabobs, the most important people, but so did the Soviet classification. Uh, didn't start with God, but it did start with Lenin. Now, this might have something to do with the fact that Lenin's wife was a librarian. So you've learned something today. Krupskaya uh, devised the Soviet classification, um, and it began uh, with Lenin. Um, why would you not start with my husband first? Um, uh, the principle that drives uh, Borger's Library of Babel, another um, Argentinian writing here, is the book that's the key to all others. So here, after the rhyming classes and the things, is the, um, the library in the name of the rose, and they are looking for the Finis Africae, the room that they can't find. This library is organised... Um, the rooms are all named after places, but I think that does not necessarily correspond to the content. Um, but they are searching for Africa, which isn't represented there. But I think the book that is the key to all others, the book that unlocks knowledge, might be 
the catalogue, there's a thought. Um, other odd organisations of libraries, I, I have read that Alistair, the late Alistair, this is not the captain of the England cricket team, but the broadcaster Alistair Cook, who for many decades um, uh, broadcast Letter from America uh, every Saturday night, and really interesting it was, in his personal library. Uh, he had books on New England up in the top right-hand corner and books on California down in the bottom left-hand corner and books on Illinois somewhere in the middle. Sounds a bit fanciful, um, but there we are. Um, and this, which probably surpasses all others, and a pamphlet on etiquette, a plea to make sure that there's no hanky-panky on the bookshelf. So the perfect hostess will, of course, segregate the works of male and female authors um, and I have also seen this referred to, you know, thinking about people's political affiliations and not putting uh, together people who will worry each other in terms of what they're thinking. So there are very many, very, very many ways of doing this. Um, a nice idea uh, by association is this uh, of the library hotel, which goes the other way. And they organised a hotel uh, by the organising principles of a library. So you could go to the seventh floor to the fine arts and go in the painting room or the music room or you could be on the fifth floor in the chemistry room and so on, um, which is rather a nice idea. Um, libraries, of course, are not averse to these mad associations of ideas. Um, formal library classification schemes have produced some very odd associations. The Warburg scheme, a wonderful scheme, quite unlike any other, that's based on the idea of cultural association under food. It puts not only uh, books about food and books about cookery, but also books about festivals and books about cannibalism. And it's hard to disagree with that. Um, Brown's subject classification, which was used in a high percentage of libraries in, uh, in the UK until the 1960s, um, uh, places um, bell ringing in physics, in acoustics. Um, because it's about sound, and on the same basis, in heat in physics, it has chimneys and fire engines. Um, and that's a, that's a legitimate link, but it may not be awfully useful. Now, how do we deal with this today? Are we still doing this sort of thing? Or is it go, oh, you know, that looks good. Um, why not? You know, when I think of food, I think of cannibalism as well. You know, isn't that that random thing? Shouldn't we just acknowledge that everything is miscellaneous and it doesn't really matter how we do things? Well, I suppose towards the end of the 19th century, it became more common to forget ideas of um, colour and shape and size and weight and to organise by subject. And obviously, when you have collections that are publicly accessible and the users don't know uh, what's contained in the collection, then they do need to have some more systematic way of accessing things. So, um, in the early 20th century, we began to see the development of some theories of knowledge organisation 
and how we might do this in a more theoretical and more structured way. So our discipline really, uh, like library science itself, is not much more than a hundred years old. So theorists began to look at uh, defining topics, to look at how subject domains are structured, um, at the idea of indexing as well as classification, so um, represent how you represent subjects uh, as well as how you organise them, um, and um, how to deal with complexity, because complexity is a problem. And in these systems, we do see both links and hierarchies. So I don't think we can say there are no hierarchies, only links, any more than we can say everything is hierarchical. There's both. It's a hybrid thing. Um, some of the difficulties here, I'm sorry to uh, introduce this garment here, um, but it illustrates <coughs> one of the reasons why we assign subject metadata, um, class marks, codes, indexing terms, and so on. Uh, and um, the idea was brought to me by uh, somebody at an ISCO event we organised on legal information and the people from this particular law firm <coughs> had been trying to explain to their staff, particularly senior staff, why it was important that you did this and in the middle of this explanation a fairly senior person jumped up and said, oh I get it, it's like the kids trousers. If you buy your child a new pair of trousers for school and you don't put a label on it a name label, you'll never see those trousers again. And this is an uh, important principle, really, uh, in indexing one of the purposes. If you don't label things as well as organising them, you will find it really, really hard to find them again. Um, within that context, it's still a difficult thing to do. Uh, subject content is sometimes really hard to identify. And titles, in particular, are really, really misleading. Um, the broad subject area might not be very evident. <coughs> and how we understand content can be really subjective. Um, one of the problems are what we call distributed relatives. So things that do have links to each other, but are not in the same hierarchy. So in our zoological classifications, we know that all the rabbits will be together. Um, all the hippopotamuses I will be together and the unicorns will be together. Um, in reality, rabbits are all over the place. Sorry, this is where I live in Suffolk and there are a large number of rabbits there. Um, let's go, what did you want about now? Um, if we look at the information landscape, what do we find? We find the same phenomenon. Rabbits are all over the place. So how do we find those rabbits and how do we bring them together? Rabbits are in all these subject areas. If you do any sort of a catalogue search, you will find rabbits in a huge number of different areas. So that's a problem as well. The labelling, the identification of things that are related, and then the impenetrability of 
titles. This I like. I mean, we have baboons in the Chinese catalogue, and here they are again. The dean, I'm sure, would be thrilled to see that baboons have an interest in metaphysics, um, as well as um, sex and friendship. So here are baboons in two different disciplinary areas. Um, the sex and friendship um, has a, you know, a, a usefully uh, named author there as well. Um, <laughs> I suspect actually both of these are about zoology um, and not about metaphysics or about social integration. Um, but these are quite hard to understand, other things. Um, we, for many years we've had a, a delightful favourite odd book, um, How to Avoid Large Ships. Um, so this is now very well known. Um, should you need to know about this. This, I think, is really of a, a, a greater practical use because few people will need to avoid large ships, but many people know how to sharpen pencils. So if you haven't mastered it, here we are. What's that? What is that about? It appears to be on the artisanal craft of pencil sharpening. Um, when you've sharpened your pencils, you can be bothered with bananas. There is a very unfortunate illustration in this book that shows how bold you can be with a banana, but I think I can leave that to your imagination um, because there are other more entertaining things without wasting two slides on that. Cooking with poo. Who let this go into the catalogue? Never mind. I presume this is, um, you know, doesn't have the same meaning in the United States, really. <laughs> and just in case, this is a very new one, this. <laughs> Games you can play with your pussy. Now, I'm sure this is, this is subject to a variety of interpretations, this book. Um, so you may um, labour over this long in thinking where to assign it and how to describe it. So the problems of organising things are very great. Um, this is a more serious one, but it illustrates part of the problems of complexity. Um, it's called the Mummies of Urumqi, I've probably pronounced that wrongly. Did Europeans migrate to China 4,000 years ago? Now what's that about? Is it about mummies? Is it about China? Is it about Europeans? Is it about migration? Or is it about what went on 4,000 years ago? Well, the answer is about all of those things. So you've got a question then. First of all, where do you put it? What takes priority? But if you're describing it, you know, in what order do you combine these things? Because the first choice of category isn't necessarily the most important thing. So this complexity of things is a real uh, problem. Um, this is perfectly in illustrated in Does Anybody Like Only Connect? This is just a brilliant uh, programme. They had a sport relief, Only Connect. And the idea is to sort these things into four discrete groups here. So there are four groups there uh, formed from Western Jumping District Red, Jubilee Central, Southern, Bareback, Northern Circle. It's very devious. Um, because most of these things can belong in more than one category. And sorting things out in this way is what I do. My whole life is one giant game of only connect, and it couldn't be more pleasant, really. Um, you need to know the answer now, don't you? Um, these are the groups 
North American time zones, horse riding styles, I always hate the term horse riding, what else would you ride? Um, kinds of cross, Maltese, Red, Southern, Victoria, and then London underground lines. But as you can see, the Victoria might be a London underground line. Um, uh, what else have we got? The Central might also. So the problem is in assigning the attributes accurately. So this is very good training for the classificationist. Listen, I think, you know, when I'm sitting there watching it, I'm really working when this is happening. Um, in the 20th century, I'm just going to talk for about five minutes on what I do and how we try and do this more properly. So this is a kind of semi-serious bit, given that we can't go on, on organising things by their rhyming syllables or colour or weight um, if we're to uh, have effective information retrieval. And now we have so much more if the early modern people thought they were overloaded. They don't know they're born. Um, and there are several important theorists in this area. Um, the first, well, Bliss is probably the first, but Otley is a really important documentalist, and he thought and wrote a lot about the relationships between things, between minds, um, between disciplines, uh, that manifestation of that knowledge in books, and then... Uh, catalogues and importantly um, uh, associations, structured things and then the classification which is the foundation of absolutely everything at the bottom. So from the early 20th century people were thinking about these things. Um, Otley tried to organise a catalogue of everything that had been printed since the invention of movable type and that is his catalogue um, at the Brussels Institute early in the 20th century, and it still exists today. There's a special museum for it at Mons in Belgium. Um, but I just love the ladies there and the lordly man, who I think is possibly not Otley at the back there. But Ranganathan is the main man in this area. Ranganathan invented what's known as faceted classification theory. And it gives us a basis for making a model of the world um, based on various attributes uh, that we arrive at through organising concepts into categories. Um, and it gives us the perfect way to deal with complexity because we have ordering systems. We put our concepts into categories and then we say this will be the order of combination between categories and we can um, define things very precisely it's rather like giving map references to place an item um, precisely. We know we give a map reference, you know, now I don't know, I should ask Ian about this. You know, north or south will come before east or west, and the same with our, with our describing our subjects. Um, these are Ranganathan's categories, um, and we end up with something that may be like three-dimensional chess. You'll note that I've avoided Star Trek here. Um, and these three-dimensional maps, um, where you're moving through more than one um, uh, uh, phase or, or uh, facet of things, and in fact, our faster classification can be n-dimensional. We can't envisage it, but we can make it work. It's like a lot of mathematical systems, I think. We, we can't think, oh, 
how can we have things in seven dimensions? What would that look like? Well, it doesn't matter. We've got the seven dimensions within our information model. Uh, Ranganathan is supposed to be inspired by Meccano. He was a student here, so he may well have sat where you're sitting, uh, listening to lectures about classification and being very puzzled, we're told. Uh, and then one day he was walking past either Ganley's or Selfridge's, we can't remember now, and saw a Meccano set. And he thought, that's, that's the way to do it. He thought, we'll deal with just the bits. Uh, we won't try and make structures out of complicated subjects. We'll deal with the bits and we'll build them up as we need to. So um, it's a very good uh, model for building a model of an information universe. Um, you've got your concepts, your bits, uh, you've got your things that join them together, and you need to have some knowledge of engineering the system syntax, the rules for combining things in order to build it properly. And from that, you can build up a very large and complicated model. Um, I also like the molecule as a model um, because that also shows the nature of components and their relationships and so on. And I think the molecule is a good model for making a description for an individual document or an individual topic. It consists of these bits arranged in this way, in this order of priority. That might be fairly simple or it might be very complicated. And then we can build that. We take all those individual bits and put them together on the Meccano basis. Then we build up a very large and complicated model of our information universe once it's populated by all these individual documents and complex topics. This is a model built by the East Anglian. Um, Meccano enthusiasts and had a big display in the department store in Norwich one day and I went and I was very I love anything like this and I went up to one of them hardly anybody there under 80 and I said were you aware that a thing like this underpins most of the theoretical thinking about information retrieval today and he went no I didn't <laughs> I don't really want to, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, but that's Ranganathan's idea, and I think that's a very good uh, model. It may be, not be true. It's like the atomic model of a molecule. It's not absolutely true. We know, you know, inside a molecule, it's not really like that. But it's a good uh, pattern of what's going on. So it's very useful uh, to us. I'm sorry, I just threw this in because <laughs> this is the big Meccano motorbike. Um, that Jeremy Clarkson um, drove around the TT circuit on the Isle of Man. So Meccano's a very robust technology to take as the basis. They went round at about five miles an hour, but they did do it. Um, I'm going to skip over these final things because we're all wanting a drink very shortly, I'm sure. Um, but there's a process here. There's the concepts, the individual bits of the Meccano, there's the way we put, we list those in the classification and the knowledge organisation system. Then we'll put individual bits together to form uh, descriptions or class codes 
for documents or, or particular concepts. And then all of those will come together to fill out that classification structure to build up a large and complicated model of the information domain. Uh, so we really got a scientific enterprise here. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I shouldn't really say this in arts and humanities, should I, that, um, uh, that we have a scientific uh, methodology, scientific, uh, very broadly uh, used there. So these are some of the things we do. This is the big classification that I work on. This just happens to be the schedule for chemistry, and it shows how we bring together building up individual classes, his uh, compounds of copper with nitrogen, with oxygen, with oxygen and hydrogen, with sulfur and oxygen, with sulfur, oxygen and nitrogen, and we're combining all these um, essential bits of things to express these more complex ideas. And there we have some things. This is an XML version of this thing, so it shows some structure there showing other terms such as operation oh, this is catalysis operations on catalyst parts these are Ranganathan's categories kinds of by effects and so on so in a systematic regular consistent way we're building up a useful tool I don't say it's a metaphysic you know it may not be absolutely true but it's a useful working way of dealing with a whole mass of information this approach is uh, very common nowadays, particularly in e-commerce. This is John Lewis's fabrics department. So we've gone from the esoteric to the very um, basic here. But you can see this faceted approach, different facets, different means of filtering the, and refining the search here. Um, you can search for different kinds <coughs> of curtains by purpose, by color, by brand, and so on. <coughs> and this is now normally known as faceted search or faceted browsing. I think we should probably come to an end there. Um, this has been a very <coughs> partial view of knowledge organisation. I mean, some of you will be very disappointed that we haven't talked about Marco Polo's meeting with the unicorn or where Professor Brainstorm brainstorm left his lobster um, but we have to leave something for another day um, I'll just finish with a slide that really uh, encapsulates everything that matters to me perhaps um, <coughs> when I was at school they said you have to choose your subjects and you have to choose between cookery and chemistry and I thought well those are really quite similar things but on the whole I think I'll go for the chemistry. And I, that was a false choice because I realised in this complex combinatorial model of the universe, you can actually combine the cookery with the chemistry. And this is perhaps my perfect classification as the periodic table in cake. <laughs> End of talk. Thank you. Uh, I'm Ian Stevenson, I'm Professor of Publishing in the Department of Information Studies, and it's my delight to propose a vote of thanks to Vanda. I think, Vanda, actually, the, uh, 
technology had it right in giving a wide screen? Because I think we've seen a cinemascopic tour d'horizon, if you like, of the world of classification, which shows how important, how fundamental classification is to everything else in the world. And Vanda, with her characteristic wit, uh, breadth of knowledge, I think going from cheese via the Bruins to Foucault <laughs> in one lecture is probably totally unsurpassed in, in, in our faculty, if not indeed this university. Um, and to end with cake, of course, is, is, is thoroughly appropriate. And if we had had a widescreen, we'd not have got the inert gases in our Of game. course, <laughs> yes, very important. Um, as you may have gathered, both Vanda and I have a weakness for, uh, shall we say, book titles that might have more than one meaning. Uh, it's glad to see cheese, your cheese problem solved, surviving. My favourite is collect fungi on stamps, <laughs> which makes perfect sense if you're a philatelist, but uh, the, mind, the mind boggles. And classification by colour. Uh, when I began my publishing career many moons ago at uh, Longman's in, in Harlow, as the most junior person in the office, I was given the phone calls that the switchboard couldn't answer. And one day I took a phone call and there was a voice like that and said, I'd like to buy some red books. And I said, yeah, um, do you have an author or a title or a subject to you? No, 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 I want some red books. Uh, I said, well, we've got some red books, but, you know, helpful to know what you're actually after. And the voice said, well, I'm an interior designer and my client wants 15 shelves of red books. <laughs> so I sold him... 1,211 copies of the out-of-date medical register, <laughs> which secured that bonus for that year. And presumably somewhere in central London, there is the medical register for, I think, 1968, over and over and over again, which would be a, a great classification. So it's a real delight to propose a vote of thanks. And I want to be serious for a minute, because some of you will know that we in the Department of Information Studies, formerly the School of Library, Archive and Information Studies, is the oldest library school outside the United States. We are just five years off our centenary, and I'd like to think that we are not only the oldest, but perhaps the most distinguished library school, either inside or outside the United States, given some of our graduates here today, seeing them, and some of our graduates who include many national librarians and, and various other great dis distinguished people in the library field. So it's very important that Vanda is not only here by virtue of her knowledge about bliss, which I was going to make a joke about, but I won't. Uh, but, uh, and is a very, very distinguished scholar in the library field, but also is once again this university, this faculty, this school has a professor of librarianship, which goes all the way back to Henry Morley, and we can tell you about Henry Morley over the drinks, if you like. But we are now, again, a fully professorialized li uh, library school, and it's a real pleasure to thank and welcome Professor van der Broughton as the, most, the latest of the UCL professors of librarianship, but by no means the least. In fact, one of the greatest. So could I ask you to thank Vanda for her contribution? <laughs>